Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. All right, so we are going to continue our Good Church sermon series. And uh, let's do a quick recap. Let's see how much you guys remember. So uh, week one, we talked about how God is tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for what? Good, good, yeah. And so we know that from God's tov that we live out tov into our community that represents God, that's his people. So we're looking at what that looks like. And when you're thinking about tov, there's also this Hebrew word ra, which I haven't really talked about much. And so there's idea of resisting ra and pursuing tov, resisting wickedness or evil or toxicity and embracing and pursuing or valuing tov. So we looked at how we, in a few weeks ago, we looked at how we resist narcissism and value what? Empathy, right? And then we looked at how we resist false narratives and value truth. And then last week, if you can remember last week, it feels like a blur, we resist power by fear and value grace. Good. So this week we're going to introduce a new one. We resist institution creep. We resist institution creep and value a people first culture. Value a people first culture. And I want to start by asking a question, you know, how are churches recognized in our day and age? How do you recognize, how do you reflect, how do you remember church? You know, for me, it's a lot about the names of church. As a church planner, we used to sit around and just come up with church names. What's a fun church name that we could be and, and represents who we are and reflects who we are? But a lot of times, church names probably should have been second thought before they were released. You guys ever run to a church name where you're kind of like, mm, I don't know if I would have named it that. Anybody? There's a few around here. Now, we don't poke fun at those, but I think it's okay to like share them in these church names and we probably understand why we probably should have thought before we released this name. So let me give you some funny church names. How about that? Should we do some funny church names? Here's the the first one. The original church of God, number two. These are real, by the way. Original church of God, number two. This one, I think, is in Yakima. Church of Godzilla. How about this one? Flippin' Church of God in Flippin' Arkansas. The Flippin' Church of God. This one's uh, better shaken than stirred. James Bond United Community Church. James Bond. Now, I really want to know the story behind that one. I don't understand. James Bond United Community Church. How about this one? This one, again, I have no context for. Hell for Certain Church. Hell for Certain Church. Going for that real wow factor, I guess. And then how about this one? All Saints Parish Church. Parish, P-A-R-R-I-S-H. All Saints Parish Church. Probably should have had another, kind of take a second to think about that one before you put that one on a board. All Saints Parish Church. You know, so we think of names, we think of brands. Church a lot of times uh, is affiliated with branding. You know, we, we, a lot of times you see church brand, you recognize exactly what it is. There's, there's feelings, there's emotions, there's characteristics when you think of brands. Structures of behavior as well. A lot of times you might think of a, a church as a structure of behavior. You think of this is something the behavior of the people are either for or against, dislike, the like. 
You might think of leadership style, organizational leadership style. So many churches are are named after their organization. So Episcopalian is an Episcopalian model. Baptists have a congregational model. The different types of leadership associated with those churches. More prevalent these days probably is speakers, teachers, pastors. The faces of these uh, churches a lot of times are how we recognize and reflect these, these different churches. For many of us, I think when we think of church, what we really think of is the institution of church. We think of the organization of church more than maybe what the biblical idea of church tends to be. You know, in definition of uh, institution, this is what Webster's Dictionary says, an established organization or corporation, such as bank, university, or church, especially of a public character. So a group of, of people who come together and are reflective out into the communities, the public, is really what the definition of institution is. Universities, banks, churches are great examples of institutions. It's an outward-facing assembly, right, for a particular purpose, the purpose of serving a particular need or function within a community. Now, the problem, though, is as churches grow, institution becomes the most important thing. We start to think about the 501c3s, the brandings, the names, the leaders. We start to put them up into places where they become the recognition of the church. The purpose of the church becomes the preservation of these things rather than what it was to begin with. When a church starts to do that, or really any organization does this, universities, businesses, anybody can fall into this because it's an assembly of people, organization of people. What happens, though, is slowly is what's called institution creep. Institution creep. And the scary thing with institution creep is that it usually happens when things are going well. This is something to resist when things are going well. Right? This is why we're talking about this, because as Jeff said, you know, God is doing amazing things here. I think God is, is, I get to see it every day, I get to see it in people, I get to see how he's healing my life, and it's these times where we have to be able to know how to resist things like institution creep and value a people-first culture. The definition of institution creep is this, as church organizations grow, right, growth is not a bad thing, right, but as it happens, as they grow, there's a tendency toward what's called institution creep in which the needs of the organization or church begin to supersede the needs of the people in the organization. So what happens is people become not the priority and it becomes how well is the institution doing? How good is the institution reflecting into the public eye rather than how are the people doing? Where are the people in the priority of the organization or the institution? And this is where churches can really make grave mistakes, even when things are going well. And the scary thing with institution creep is that it's an, 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 an inevitable, I can't say it, inevitable. There it is. Inevitable. It will happen. Just like most of the things we've talked about over the last few weeks that could and will happen, this is one of those things that it will happen. As things grow, this is a temptation for us that will always be there. This is why we need to have it out in the forefront of our minds. This is why in the direction of the church, as we think about who we are and where we're going as a people, we are a people who resist it and value something better. In fact, John the Baptist, he even dealt with it within his circle. It was something that even the Bible had in the, in the biblical times, in the New Testament, that they had to deal with. So if you turn with me to John chapter 3, 
We're going to read 25 through 28, and we're going to read how institution creep even affected the people in Jesus' day. In verse 25, it says, Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, talking to Jesus, and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone's going to him. Everyone's leaving our group and going to his group. His group is growing. It's getting bigger than ours. Does this sound like churches that you may have seen in the past? They're, they're doing better than us. The institution, our, our group is dwindling because we lost Andrew and Simon even to this group. Now we look back on this and say this is kind of ridiculous knowing who Jesus was, but this is institutional creep. John the Baptist's ministry was very influential. When you have Pharisees from Jerusalem coming down to check out what's happening, that's a pretty big deal. When you have Apollos later in history, a New Testament character, realizes that he was a student of John the Baptist, this is an important character. And so this is an important, successful, influential group, and they're worried about it shrinking. They're worried about it not succeeding in the eyes of the people who are in it. Look at John's reply in 28. He says, guys, you yourselves testify to what I said. You're a witness to what I've said. I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He says, don't forget your purpose. Don't forget why we were here in the first place. Why we, we were even baptizing in the wilderness to begin with. It wasn't to create an organization that loves baptizing people. It was to point people to Jesus. He who, was the, who, he who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So he says, this joy of mine is complete. He says, the purpose of the way we were living out is complete. My joy is found in the fact that we are living the goodness of God in the baseline of what it meant for our purpose to exist. And he says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John understood that his disciples wanted to see a growing movement. His disciples wanted to see a radical growing movement. They believed in it, right? It was some good things, successful good things were happening. But as soon as the disciples of John began to take their eye off of the purpose of why they were doing what they were doing, institution creep is what was creeping in. The drive for success, the drive for growth, the drive for influence were creeping away and John had to rebuke them by saying, hey, this is why we're here. (laughs) We're here for Jesus. We're here to point people to him. Let him increase so that we decrease. The danger of institution creep is that it happens progressively and in times of success and the things seem to be going the best just like in John the Baptist's time. Every church organization of people need to remember that it's not in the hard times that this type of thing calls in. It's in the good times. It's when things are going well when we can start to lose focus of our purpose of being a people. Why we are here as a people happens in the good times and in the bad times. So I created what's called the culture curve This is about as much art as you'll ever see me make, okay? The culture curve. So let me walk you through the culture curve here. Trying to figure what's the best way to stand. Probably here. So we have our baseline. This is the the baseline of health, or you might even call the baseline of Tove, right? The baseline of God's goodness. And as we come together as a church, a lot of times we start with a mission or a purpose, 
right? This can be as simple as things like love God, love people, right? We want to we see Jesus' restorative powers into our community and in our lives, right? It starts with a mission and a purpose, right? John the Baptist was our purpose was to pave the way for the coming Messiah, right? What happens, though, is as growth occurs, as things like success happen, right? They were starting to baptize a lot of people. I think as churches, we start to, to carry these things called KPIs, key performance indicators in our heads. What is the measurement of success of the church? When I was writing my resume as a pastor, I had the hardest time trying to think of what was a good KPI for a pastor. Like, is it how many butts are in seats? I don't, they didn't look, wasn't comfortable with that. How many baptisms you had? I definitely wasn't comfortable with that. Was it how many times I took someone out to lunch? I could do that. Yeah, that was a good KPI, right? Like, it starts to become about the performance indicators less than the purpose, right? So as success happens, influence then happens. You start to see impact in your, your, your communities, which is a good thing, right? We, we want to impact our communities, but at the same time, we don't want impact to be the end of itself, where we go, look how important we are with my suede jackets on and my patch, you know. <laughs> it becomes about the influence, right? It becomes about how important and influential the community is. And again, we start to separate ourselves from the purpose of how we started. And then we start seeing some of the real ramifications, the power dynamics start to enter in, where power becomes the biggest thing. And instead of using our power for the purposes of helping people, the power of, of the purposes of freeing the oppressed or the abused or getting, using it to help people, we start to see it become used more for self-protection. We start to see the silencing of people. We start to see people becoming hurt and broken within institutions or churches, and they're voiceless within them because the power was held away from them and protect, self-protection becomes the main thing. And this leads into what is called theological malpractice. Theological malpractice. What happened is the original purpose, the purpose of why the church was there in the be- to begin with, has been lost. And if you've been in a church for, for 20 years or so, it, it, you look back on the first day you gathered compared to 20 years from now, at all times you're like, I don't even recognize who we are anymore. Right? There, there sometimes tends to be this idea of where did we begin and where are we now and how far have we left our purpose? Because a lot of times church's purposes are, have become more how do we sustain what we've built rather than remembering the reason that we're here. And that can be institution creep, which leads to theological malpractice. Theological malpractice is defined this way. So beliefs that place more value on the institution of the church over the humanity, the people focus here, of victims misses the central teaching of the gospel. So when people become deprioritized, when helping the broken and the sinful and those who are struggling become deprioritized for the sake of raising up the institution, we start to lead into theological malpractice. And that misses the central teaching of the whole message of Jesus. Jesus actually opposed most of the institution. He was the reason people didn't like him was because he opposed the institution of his days. In fact, he raised up people. He went to people. He loved people. He met people where they were, as we looked at over the last few weeks. It says, when loving God and neighbor falls by the wayside to the preservation of institutional and professional reputations, 
Dr. Rand, Mitch Randall says that by definition is theological malpractice. So when it becomes the more the preservation of the institution rather than the meeting and the prioritization of people, we start to see theological malpractice. And, you know, in, when I was in, in college, I had a professor and he, he was telling us, and we were all trained to be pastors. And he said, you know, your goal really as a pastor should be that nobody one day makes a podcast about you. I, if, if you're familiar with some of the podcasts that are out there these days, a lot of them are talking about theological malpractice, right? A lot of the, the criticism against the institutional church right now is because of theolo- theological malpractice where the church, the leadership, the institutions become the priority and the people become deprioritized. And I think now we're seeing a reverse in our culture where people are starting to get a voice. You know, podcasts are one way that anybody can just start one and start talking. And things are starting to come to light that are now are very revealing and are, I think are going to be in the long term very good for the church. Because those who didn't have a voice now have a voice and we're starting to see correction happening within the church. Truth is starting to come out and that's a beautiful thing. We shouldn't run from that. We should embrace it take the feedback, and pursue Tov. So when asked a lot of times, how do we kind of litmus test a theological malpractice? What, how do we test that in a church environment? And I think what I've come to, and this is my own personal experience and things that I've seen in, in my walk, being a pastor for almost a decade, the question that I usually ask will, at, will be, how are your women treated in your church? I think the, 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 the women in our churches have a lot of times been deprioritized. Usually the, they're the least people, they're the people you get to see least spoken of in church. They get to speak the least amount in church. They a lot of times are, are just a little bit more hidden away. And so when I ask people, well, how are your women treated in church? I'm asking, are they valued? Do you see areas where they're growing? Are they developing? Are they heard? Are there stories heard? I mean, how often do you hear stories of women from the Bible, from the pulpit? Right? Because there's a lot of good ones, right? How are women treated is a really important question when we think about how do we handle this. Because if you look at cases of sexual abuse, clergy abuse, spiritual abuse, the case studies are telling us that 95% of those are women. So if we're falling into theological malpractice and we're not asking our ladies in the church, how are you doing? We're capable of falling into it ourselves. And so we have to be cognizant of it. They have to be a priority. Everybody has to be a priority. Male, female, doesn't matter. But our women have been a great litmus test for us and should be a good litmus test for us on how we continue to search after Tov and seek Tov. Because women, your feedback and your voice is extremely important to the health of this church. Like I told the women at our, our women's launch, I said, a healthy church has healthy women in it. And, and your voices are extremely important to us. Your feedback is important to us. Your perspective is important to us. I have women in our sermon meetings. We talk about what we're going to teach about that Sunday. You know, it's really important to gather that perspective. And at RLC, my dream is that everyone has a voice. Everyone is heard. Everyone's stories are capable of bringing change to a group of people. You are as important as anybody else in our church. So how do we develop people-first cultures? From a place of theological malpractice, how do we develop people-first cultures? Well, let's look at the other side of that graph. How do we get into people-first 
Well, we have to remember that the people are the mission, right? The people are the mission. The mission is not to grow a large church, right? Give me a Tove church over a 10,000 person church any day, any day, not even a, not even a hesitation because people are the mission. Jesus built his community as people focused. He was there to serve people. He was there to restore people. The whole book of the Bible, the whole main theme through the entire thing from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is about the restoration of God's people. From the moment they sin to the moment they're redeemed at the final, at, at the final judgment at the, garden of, in the, the return of Eden, in Revelation 22, it's about God's restorative power for humanity. His purpose from day one has always been, how do we restore people? It hasn't been about growing organizations. The kingdom of God is made up of people, different people, all kinds of different people within the kingdom of God. It's about restoration. So we must remember that as we, cons- as we pursue people-first cultures, we are in the restorative business the same as Jesus was. That we're not in the business to grow big numbers and have 200 baptisms that day for no particular reason, which, I mean, not a bad thing. Hear me out. But at the same time, that's not the indicator of success. People being restored shows that there's, Jesus is moving and working within our midst. I don't care if we work all year, we see one restoration somebody where someone becomes free from sin. Somebody has, is, you know, comes to the Lord and, and says, boy, I'm following Jesus now. Success. Good year. Right? That's the purpose of being a people first culture. People are first in our priorities and our purposes. The second one as we go forward is Adelphoi. Adelphoi. This is the, the main word that you read, Paul uses, particularly for brothers and sisters, which he calls the church. So there's two words for church in the New Testament. You see the word ecclesia, which is a, uh, an assembly of people, right? An assembly of people in the name of Jesus is an ecclesia, church. The other word is Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. It talks about the family of God. And God is, is his mission, his purpose was always to create with him a family. He wants a family. This is why you see the, the words that are used as far as we are adopted into sonship. We are children of God adopted by faith. There's a family aspect of siblings coming together under the banner of Jesus Christ and the family of God. It's the number one way that Paul thinks about church. He doesn't think about it from an institutional standpoint. I don't think he would understand what that would even mean as an institutional church. I think all he saw were brothers and sisters gathering together and how they treated one another was how he was thinking about this assembly. People first cultures consider one another not according to social status, ethnic status, roles, responsibilities, either gender. These are all things that are not considered in a people first culture. People are considered. But as people who belong to Christ by faith, we are all unified in one in Jesus, when we talk about Pakistan, we are unified in one in Jesus, regardless of our cultural differences. Most of us, I know me in particular, would go over there and probably offend a lot of people unknowingly. Right? A lot of cultural differences there, but there's still a unification that is found in Jesus. The care for siblings is the mark of a people first culture that are pursuing the goodness of God. When you think about how siblings care for one another, how they look out for one another, how they protect one another, how they believe in one another, 
trust in one another, see the good and the bad, and love each other anyways, is the model that, the, the, that Paul gives us of what it looks like to be a church. It's a different level of caring when you think about it as a family model. And too often, I think sometimes we, we say, hey, we're a family, but yet the action is not really family-like. It's more institution-like, right? I want to try to get away from that. I really want to try to create a culture that really says we're family and shows it, means it when it's said. The next one is belonging. The next one is belonging. Relationships are how we foster belonging, not programs. Right? Relationships are how we foster belonging, not programs. Programs are good. I mean, I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up in every program you could possibly have, right? I mean, we did programs really well in the 90s, right? But it wasn't the programs that did anything. It was the relationships that were found in the programs that brought belonging, right? So if we're going to rely on programs, what happens is we institutionalize them and we say we have to protect the program, Whereas the program might be the thing that's hurting people, right? What we need to be looking at is how do we foster relationship? How do we bring relationship through these programs? How do we get people to meet one another? How do we get people in belonging with one another and ownership of what's happening here as a community? It's a different type of, of question, a different angle. It's relationships that come together. You know, a lot of times, this is, pastors' meetings drive me nuts sometimes, Okay. Because you'll be sitting there, and I've heard pastors say things like, how many giving units do you have? And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> right? And, and like over the years, I've learned what a giving unit is. But I'm like, if you're viewing people through giving units, I, that's an institutional creep that I don't think they recognized. Right? That is something that said you were... And there's nothing wrong with quantifying things. Right? We should have data, make good, informed, quantifiable decisions based on data. But when that becomes about those things, and that's all that matters, we have a problem. People-first cultures are assessed by people's ability to belong in relationship with one another within a community. Right? Do we value relationships as a community? Or do we value programs as a community? Do we value talking about the hard stuff as a community or do we shy away with it because we're afraid of what it might bring to the institution or the brand? Right? Relationships are the things we pursue because the Lord doesn't see you as a number. He's not going to see you in heaven and go, oh wow, 6,753 just arrived. Congratulations. Well done. Right? That is not how he is going to greet you in heaven. Right? He doesn't see you as a number. He, you know, he, he sees you, and he sees your story. He sees your story. He sees exactly where you are, where, you, where he met you, where he knows you. He's relational, the same as our churches should be. That people's stories really matter. The things they've been through, the things they're going through now, the things that have happened to them, the things they've done, those things matter because it builds relationships, it builds belonging, and it brings restoration. The last one is, have eyes like Jesus. Have Jesus-like eyes. View people the way he viewed people. Again, he was kind of an institutional opposer, right? I think the institutions didn't like him very much. In fact, they killed him. So that says a lot. Have people-first eyes like Jesus did. He was always looking for people. He was always looking out for people. Whether he be protecting someone from stoning 
whether it be speaking out for somebody who couldn't speak out, he was always looking at people. People first cultures make tove decisions towards people. They make tove decisions towards people. Paul does this really well in a, in a verse that might challenge how you would view this world. I don't know. But let me read it for you. 2 Corinthians 2, 12-13. Paul writes, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, right? Preaching the gospel of Christ. A pretty important job, right? Pretty, pretty cool thing to do as an evangelist. And found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Wow, he, he opened this grand door. I could preach the gospel to thousands of people. We don't know, right? Just pretend that's... That's what we know. Huge opportunity. Look what he says in verse 13. I still had no peace of mind, though. Because I didn't find my brother Titus. He there. So I said goodbye to them and went back to Macedonia. Did you see that? The the greatest evangelist of all time said no to teaching the gospel in Troas because his brother wasn't there. You know, too often in the institutional church, evangelism becomes this mighty pedestal. The evangelist becomes this pedestal. The guy who's going out or girl who's going out and catching everybody and bringing them in, right? Look what Paul does here. Huge opportunity. Spread the gospel. Good things. Great things that we we should do. But he says, what's more important is making sure my brother's okay. Making sure Titus is okay. I'm going to cross the sea back to where Titus is to make sure that he's okay, to make sure the Corinthians are okay. When we take things like evangelism and we make them pedestals, people are deprioritized. Whereas Paul, he prioritized people because he knew the gospel mission was about pursuing people, not trying to make yourself into something like a pedestal. So a lot of times in churches, we put things, we put them on pedestals, growth, Success, influence, evangelism, whatever that might be, people are deprioritized. Paul is this is a great example of how Paul prioritized people, did the hard things, made the hard decisions towards people that were tove. The eyes of Jesus are always on others. He is always others oriented. How do we be a community that's others oriented rather than institutional orientation? Instead of worrying about our success, our influence, what if we looked at how people are treated, how others are treated, how others are belonging, how others are valued, how others are worthy, all these things that that Jesus did. You know, when Jesus went to the cross on Calvary, he wasn't thinking of numbers and organizations, institutions. He was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. He was thinking of people. Right? It, wasn't, it wasn't this grand organization that he was like, I'll take those nails for. I'll take that death for. No, he's like, I'll take it for you. He knew your name. For you, he said, I'll do that. That is a people orientation that none of us will really fully comprehend. The love and the depth of that type of a other's orientation. And a tove group of people looks at others and says, hey, I, I want to be able to be there for you, for others. You know, when we think about church, you know, when you, when you give time, you're thinking about how this is going to bless others. You might, you know, give financially, whatever it is, you're thinking, boy, how is this going to bless others? 
Even just like, how do I, this building blesses people. I mean, I'm here on Tuesdays for AA meetings and the meetings that we get to have for people in here. And, you know, everything that we do is part of because somebody said, I'm going to give for others. We're all here because somebody in our lives has said, I'm going to give to others. You know, that's the drive behind being a church of Tove or church of goodness is that we love others, be there for others, care for others, do everything in our lives based off of others. In fact, I dare say our church exists to reflect Jesus by serving and blessing others. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.